Probably about a month ago, I had a conversation with someone about how we might study the scriptures, how we might approach the Bible. And we talked about how we might read the Word of God, about how we might intentionally place ourselves in a place where God's Word can impact us more fully. And I guess that conversation got me thinking, and I did a little bit of research, which led me to an article on the Baptist Union of Victoria website. And this article started off by saying, Australian researchers found that if pastors could do only one thing to help people at all levels of spiritual maturity grow in their relationship with Christ, they would inspire, encourage and equip their people to read the Bible. Specifically to reflect on Scripture for meaning in their lives. And similarly, the the Centre for Biblical Engagement discovered that the number one thing you can do for yourself spiritually is read the Bible four times a week or more. Read Read it this frequently and your life looks completely different from people who don't read the Bible at all or who read it less than four times a week. Another survey that resulted in the, in the book What a Thousand Churches Reveal About Spiritual Growth found that reflection on Scripture is by far the most influential personal spiritual practice. There really is nothing more important to our maturity in Christ than our continued commitment to his word. Yet it is such a struggle to find the time, the motivation and the, I guess, the intellectual and the spiritual focus required when reading the Bible. And I think for us today, there are some very, very real hurdles which are are really quite unique to our age, which I think we've really got to address if we're going to take the word of God seriously. I was reading a study this last week that said office workers... When asked, how often do you check your inbox every hour? We'll say 10 to 15 times an hour. But when they actually monitored these office workers, they discovered that they were checking their inbox 30 to 40 times an hour. And I know what it's like when when you read the Bible, when you read the Word of God, very often on an electronic device whether it be a phone or whatever, how easy it is. It's literally one click away from... And and often the notifications will just come up and then you'll see, oh, someone's posted something on Facebook. I've just got to check what that is. Uh, There's a Facebook notification. Oh, no, put the word of God down. I know how hard it is. I mean, we have more access to the scriptures than any other generation. But sadly, I think we have so many more distractions. As John Piper said recently, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. I think he's right. I want to challenge us all, and me included. You know how ridiculous it is to be working on this sermon and to find yourself doing exactly this. 
I'm working away at the sermon and then I'm checking things. I'm looking at the news and I'm jumping around all over the place. This is hard. It is hard to focus. And I think there's this sense that we have, we have so much access to information that we can actually believe as a community that we know so much because it's just there. I mean, the other night I was gathering with some people here at Polson where we're talking about you know, the creation of the universe and all this stuff. And I said something about the speed of light. And I mean, who can remember the speed of light? You know, I said, oh, it's, you know, 3.2 million metres, you know, a second. And straight away people are going, no, Murray, it's not. It's 2.99. They're on Google. They didn't know that. But they did within a couple of seconds. I think there's this idea that, well, anything that's worth knowing, we can know just by asking Google. But the reality is that today, generally, the community don't have any idea how to do things. That we used to know 100 years ago, where everyone knew how to do the things that you needed to do every day in life. If I said to you, you go and make yourself a, an iPad or a you know, a computer or a new mo- a modern motor car. I mean, that information is held by a handful of people. It really is. None of that stuff relates to what I'm talking about, really. See, there's head knowledge, but then there's wisdom. The wisdom that comes from God's word when we allow it to shine a light into our life and to reveal stuff about us to ourselves. That's what I'm really talking about. And I think we all need to just take a serious look at the word of God and our relationship to it and how we allow the word of God to speak to us. There is a way to study the Bible which I have found particularly helpful and it's called meditating on the scriptures. It is a way of listening to the word of God and allowing God to speak to me personally through them. And I first came across this this way of reading the scriptures in the writings of Richard Foster and his classic work, Celebration of Discipline. I know many of you have read it. I know at Pulse we've kind of worked our way right through it. It is a, a wonderful book. Um, but I first discovered it there. You know, Psalm 1 says that, Blessed is he whose delight is in the law of the Lord. It's verse 2 of Psalm 1. Blessed is he whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And it says, And on his law... He meditates day and night. I like to think of that as just rolling something around in my head, rolling it around, pondering it. You know, when we read something just before we go to bed, often we'll ponder it through the night. And it talks in the Psalms about thinking about God's law in the still, quiet hours of the night. I find that when I think about God's word, just before I go to bed, often it feels like the Lord comes to me at two or three in the morning and just speaks to me about the stuff I've been reading. I think we need to take seriously how we meditate on the scriptures. So when we do this, let me just walk it through. It can be very helpful to try to not just skim read it, not just just try to get through it, but slow down in our reading and try to place ourselves within the story within the text, in a sense, to say, what would that have been like to have been there? 
Try to smell the smells. Try to, try to hear the sounds and to enter into the emotions of the characters within the story. Now let me just say, you can't do that if you're skim reading the scriptures while you're waiting for the bus. You can't. You can't do that if you're watching a movie and you think, oh, I haven't done my Bible reading. I'll just do it while I'm watching the movie. You can't do that. You need to set aside some time and intentionally put yourself in a place where the word of God will speak to you. Today, I want us to imagine that we were there with the 12 disciples of Jesus. I want you to put yourself within that group of men who were close to Jesus when he walked amongst us. Don't just listen to the narrative, but rather try to place yourself within the story, immerse yourself in it, and pray that God will reveal himself to you through that process. Pray that God will reveal the real you to you as we remember and think about together a short little segment in the days just prior to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. Let's pray together as we do this. Lord Jesus, we have gathered here today intentionally. There's any number of other things we could have done. We have come here today to sit under your word. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to enter into this little bit of text, this story, this little bit of life, and that as we do that, you would individually by your spirit speak into our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The setting is Bethany. It's just three kilometres from Jerusalem. It's about as far as Lakehaven Shops is from here. Jesus had spent the last weeks ministering in and around Jerusalem. Remember that as he entered Jerusalem, he entered it riding on the most humble of animals, the foal of a donkey. Not just a donkey, it was the foal of a donkey, barely able to, to stand up under his weight. I think it's very interesting that when Caesar entered Rome, he came in riding on the most magnificent stallion. With all of the kings of the nations that he'd captured behind him. And Gaius Julius... Caesar had seven triumphs in a row. It's a very different picture, isn't it? That happened less than 100 years before Jesus. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on the foal, the colt, the foal of a donkey. He had been vocal about his disdain for the behaviour of Israel's religious elite. He'd ruffled a few feathers, to say the least, in the previous days. In fact, he'd upset the authorities so much so that they were determined to kill him. And they had posted a request for information about his whereabouts so they could arrest him. Think about this. During the Passover feast, it is believed that Jerusalem's population grew from 50,000 to 250,000. You getting the idea? There are people everywhere. 
People everywhere, strangers everywhere, and the authorities are after just one man and they want him dead. Jesus knows that they're after him. He knows that his arrest, his trial, his execution are imminent. So he retires to spend his last hours with his friends, with his mates. There's a powerful storm brewing. And in the quiet before the storm, Jesus retires with his friends for a meal and some rest. So let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Verse 1 says, Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Remember, there's five times the normal population. And Jesus has been doing miracles all over the place. Verse 3, while he was in Bethany, three kilometres away, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so they watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now first up, we need to understand when these events are taking place. See, Mark bothers to include the details in his account. So he obviously felt that it was important. This is happening on the the Wednesday before Jesus is crucified on the following Friday. So it's just a couple of days before their, their worlds will come crashing down around them. Jesus knows what is about to happen. And the disciples' apparent unconcern must have just added to his sense of isolation. Only a week or so earlier, Jesus had entered the city riding on a donkey and the the crowds had cheered him, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna is a a Hebrew Hebrew expression meaning save. And uh, it has become an exclamation of praise. And the people were literally calling out, Save us! Save us, son of David! We need to hear that. Save us, son of David, they screamed. Now the question is, from whom? Save us from whom? Well, the Romans, they were the occupying force. And the Jews longed to be freed from the oppression of the Romans. They longed for their country to, to dominate politically as it had in the, time, the times of David and Solomon. That was their history. See, the Jews believed that the Messiah would be an earthly king ruling on the throne of his forefather David and restoring political power to the nation of Israel. 
There was tension in the air this particular week. We need to feel the tension. There were literally hundreds of thousands of zealous Jews from all over the countryside staying in Jerusalem for the Passover feast and then the following Feast of Unleavened Bread as Jesus, this miracle-working teacher, comes into the city. The crowds were no doubt convinced that their saviour had finally arrived. This man, Jesus, would, they hoped, miraculously deliver them from the Romans. The authorities, the religious authorities, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, on the other hand, they wanted him dead. You see, things were getting out of hand. I mean, how could this uneducated, rough and ready carpenter be allowed to gain power? The religious leaders had much to gain from the Romans remaining in power and they wanted things to stay just as they were. It was crucial for their survival that they maintain peace throughout the festival. Jesus would be killed. But after the feast, when the crowds had subsided and left, see, the Pharisees understood the power of the people. They understood that if they were given reason to riot, they would. There was tension in the city. And they didn't want anything to happen which would incite this kind of reaction. But Jesus ultimately had to be stopped. He had to be killed. So while the Pharisees were plotting to have Jesus arrested, where's Jesus? Well, he's just three kilometres away, enjoying the company of friends in a little hamlet known as Bethany. And it's not that Jesus didn't realise the reality of the situation. The text seems to indicate that he knew all too well what was just around the corner. The priority for him was in spending the last remaining hours with close friends in an intimate setting. Verse 3 says, While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Jesus was reclining at the table of Simon the leper. I mean, maybe, maybe Jesus had healed Simon of his leprosy and now he was having a dinner party for Jesus and the disciples. We don't really know. We do know that Simon must have been healed because there was no way a leper was going to be at the table with them if he had not been healed. A man with leprosy could not have shared a meal with them. You know, when a similar story is told in Luke's gospel, he mentions that Simon was also a Pharisee. That's why it's good to read not just the one story, but to read, okay, how do the other gospels tell this story? What are the differences? In Luke's gospel, he mentions that Simon was also a Pharisee and that the woman involved was a sinful woman of that town, a prostitute. Now, that story appears to be earlier in Jesus' ministry. And at that stage, Simon appears to be unsure of just who Jesus is. Maybe Mary anointed Jesus twice, or maybe this is another woman who also anointed Jesus with expensive perfume. We can't really be sure. We do know that Mary and Martha, their sisters, and their brother is Lazarus. Okay? It's just a family, two girls and a boy. And they live in Bethany. And we do know that they were close friends of Jesus. Mark's account just says, 
A woman came with an alabaster jar. But John's account says that it was Mary who poured the perfume on Jesus. John also says that it was Lazarus's house where they were. Getting how there's different details? Now maybe, this is why we've got to place ourselves in the story and just ask some questions and think it through. Maybe Lazarus and Simon were sharing a house together. It says that Martha, Mary's sister, served them. And it makes sense when you think about it that these guys may have shared a house. You see, until recently, Simon had been a leper. And if he was also a Pharisee, if he was a friend of Jesus, he would have been an outcast, not only because of his leprosy, but because he was a follower of Jesus. And particularly if Jesus had healed him, he would have been an outcast from his, his group of Pharisees. So until recently, Simon's been a leper, and not long before, Lazarus was literally dead and buried. Remember that? Jesus had performed the most amazing of miracles and had raised him from the dead because he'd been in the ground how long? Three days. Three days he'd been in the tomb. And maybe it was this miracle which turned Simon from opposing Jesus to following him. And maybe he'd been healed as well. Who knows what we do know? We do know that they were all there together. Jesus and his close friends all there together enjoying a meal together. Remember what I said at the start? Try to put yourself into that house. Try to imagine the scene. There's probably laughter and funny stories being told about the day's events in the city. You know what it's like when family and close friends come together? There's lots of noise and laughter, isn't there? I can imagine someone telling the story about, you know, the other day we're on our way down to Jerusalem and Jesus goes up to get a fig off this tree and there's no fruit on the tree. And I heard him, I heard him say, curse you, wretched tree. And on the way back, the tree's dead. I can imagine them telling all these stories with each other and, and laughing about things. And into the midst of all of this, John tells us that Mary came, broke open a jar of perfume and poured it on Jesus' head and the other Gospels say on his feet. We know that she unravelled her hair, something that a, a respectable woman of that time would not have done. She would not have done that in public. It was a humiliating thing for her to do, to unravel her hair. That was the kind of thing prostitutes did. And she wiped his feet with her tears and her hair. That's what Luke and John's gospel tells us. Remember in those days, the streets were filthy dirty. See, often covered in, in excrement and rubbish thrown from the, the closely packed homes. Now, that's why Mary's act of washing Jesus' feet with her hair is just so amazing. Now, this was no ordinary perfume. This perfume was expensive. Now, John's account says that it was worth a year's wages. Just for a moment, let that sink in. I had a look last night. The average income in Australia is just under $60,000 a year. This perfume 
in today's money is worth forty to sixty thousand dollars. That that kind of makes it a different kind of offering, doesn't it? The sheer value of what she had. And I think the other thing we need to realise is that this perfume was stored in a container made from alabaster. And they didn't have the preservatives which we have today. So when you opened a container of perfume like this, you opened it once. There's no kind of open it, you use it over the next five years. Like it's just, you open it once. You use it all once. And before long, it goes. I mean, it is, it is the most amazing image of grace, isn't it? Really, I mean, it kind of it reflects what Jesus is about to do on the cross, though to a far greater degree. I mean, it really is the most amazing image, this perfume and all that it stood for. I mean, this is the kind of thing that was passed from mother to daughter. This is a family heirloom, an item not only of immense value materially, but probably also emotionally for Mary. This perfume, all that it stood for, may well have been the most precious thing that Mary owned. It could well have been the only thing she owned of great value. She simply came to Jesus, broke it open, and disregarding the cost, anointed Jesus with it, pouring it over his head and his feet. Just try to imagine it. The aroma is just suddenly filling the room and it's running down his head and on his beard and into his clothing and then she's wiping his feet with her hair that's full of the perfume. You in the moment? You're there, you're seeing it. John says, And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I just want you to get the significance of what is happening here. See, Jesus knows that he is being anointed for burial because he actually makes reference to it. He knows I am being anointed for burial. She had just decided to do this thing to express her deep love and devotion to Jesus. She doesn't understand. She couldn't have realised that Jesus would be executed within a couple of days and that she would, funnily enough, on the following Sunday be going to anoint his dead body in the tomb. But you see, she would never get to do this, would she? Because, praise God, he, by Sunday he had risen and the tomb was empty. And I guess that's why Jesus said, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. This truly is the most amazing act of love and devotion. Clearly, Mary loved Jesus with all her heart. So this morning, I just want to ask just you one question. One question I want to ask you this morning as we think about and as we meditate on this passage of Scripture. How much do you love Jesus? How much do you love Jesus? It's a very simple question, but it's challenging. How much do you love Jesus? See, Mary, it seemed, loved Jesus 
with kind of every part of her being. Nothing was too much for him. She, she didn't just say she loved Jesus. She showed it by what she did. Mary knew that her sins, and it seems that they were many, had been forgiven. And, and she wanted to show him how much she loved him by blessing him with this selfless act. So I'm going to ask you this morning, and I ask myself, do you love Jesus like Mary loved Jesus? Or are you more like you're more like the other disciples. You see, the disciples didn't even realise what she'd done. I mean, selfishly, they were looking for a pat on the back from the master. Have a look at what they say in verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly, indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Put yourself there in the, in the room. There's all the laughter. You're joking about something. There's good food and drink. It's, you're having a great time. Then Mary comes in, does this thing. There's this smell just permeating everything, everywhere. And then kind of breaking that, you know, it just shatters the moment. What are you doing, you stupid woman? What are you doing? That money could have helped so many people and you've just poured it on his grubby feet. What are you doing? Are you nuts? It just shatters it, doesn't it? Now, just for a moment, try to imagine what it's like to be Mary. In that time, how's Mary feel in that moment? Now, once again, John's account has a little more detail about what actually happened. He says, But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? worth a year's wages and then he adds he did not say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief as keeper of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it so John highlights that Judas was the one who rebuked her for this apparent waste I want you to remember that John was actually there whereas Mark probably wasn't an eyewitness to this it seems that Mark was probably a, a teenage boy whose mum had a house that the disciples hung out in and Mark would have been probably about Jordan's age, about 15 at the time. So he's seeing some things, he's not seeing others. He's not there, but John was there. John knows the motivation behind the comment. You know what? I think we can do the same thing. We can do exactly the same thing. We can make things sound spiritual, especially if we're church, just like Judas did. If you've been coming to church for many years, you get to know the language and you can make things sound better than they really are. But Jesus always sees to the heart of the matter and he knows our real motives. 
See, Jesus knew Mary's motive was pure. She just loved him with all her heart and he went to her defence. So think about the moment. Suddenly Judas is standing up, getting into her. The moment's been shattered. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You see, as usual, Jesus cuts straight to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? Mary was expressing her devotion and her love to Jesus and he saw it. He saw it for exactly what it was. And he also saw the reaction behind, the, the, the motive behind the disciples' reaction, and especially Judas. Do you see the contrast between those who were there? Some, maybe most of them, missed the point. The thing is, when all is said and done, they're worrying about the cost, and they're worrying about all these other things, and, and oh, who's Judas to speak up? And all he wants is the money. They're thinking about all these things. But Jesus knows. Now let's get to the heart of this. What is this really about? How much do you love me? That's it, isn't it? Just how much do you love me? See, I think the answer to that question, how much do you love Jesus, that will impact Every, every area of your life. It really will. How much do you love Jesus? It will impact every part of your life. See, the answer to that simple question will change your life. If you love Jesus with all your heart, if you love him more than anything else, if you love him more than you love your own life, I mean, things cannot go on as they have in the past. It'll change the things you chase after, won't it? It will change the goals in life. It will change how you spend your time and your money. It will change how you view others. It will change everything in your life. I want to ask all of us this morning, are you like Mary or are you more like Judas? who was in it for what he could get from Jesus. Judas, who sold out his mate, his lord, his master, for the price of a common slave. That was the price. 30 pieces of silver, the going rate for a slave, the king of kings, for the price of a slave. Are you more like Mary? Or deep down, are you more like Judas? You know, some years ago, I came across the story of two young women, Sylvia Folds and Jan Russell, who really, I mean, they poured their lives out like expensive perfume for Jesus. 
And I know that some of you have supported these women for many years through Ladies Fellowship. And uh, it wasn't that long ago that Jan Russell was here at our church. Sylvia and Jan went to a little country town, uh, sorry, a little tiny country in West Africa called Toga in 1978. At the time, they were younger than Shan. They were about 30 years old. They went there. They left family and friends. They had their whole lives ahead of them. And they chose to spend the next 30 years giving the people of Toga a translation of the New Testament in their own language. And when you actually read about the story, the hurdles for these ladies were enormous. See, it's not like writing a translation of the Bible in English when we have, you might start and you've got to learn the Greek and then you've got to work out how to translate it and there's all of this stuff written about English. There's nothing written down about this language. The language is called MOBA. So not only did they have to adjust to living in a strange country away from family and friends, but when they started, the language had not even been written down. Ever. The language had not been written down yet. They first had to learn the language and then work out how to spell the sounds they were hearing. Now the thing is that with MOBA, in that language it doesn't just use sounds, it also uses pitch to communicate the meaning of words. So they had to work out how to spell words that were in a sense multi-dimensional. So a word like went in English, in MOBA, if you said, I went, is totally different to I went. Andrea is sitting there, <laughs> interested in this. <laughs> you can just imagine how difficult this would be. They had to work out how to spell words that were, in a sense, multidimensional. I mean, it's just very, very difficult, isn't it? Ultimately, it took them 10 years to complete that part of the project. And then in 2008, 30 years after starting, the people of Toga have a complete New Testament translation in their own language. I mean, it's an amazing story, isn't it? These ladies, Sylvia Foles and Jan Russell, and the others who joined them in this project poured out the most expensive thing they had, their lives. They did. They poured out their lives for Jesus and his church and a group of people who didn't have the Bible in their own language. How much do you love Jesus? It's a hard question, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, why does it say, therefore? It says, therefore, because of everything that Christ has done for us. That that's what Paul has just spent the previous 11 chapters telling us. Because of all that Christ has done for us, 
in view of God's mercy, in loving us when we didn't love him, in dying in our place, in redeeming us, restoring us to the Father, in giving us a hope and a future, in sending his Holy Spirit to live within us. Therefore, because of all of that, and because you love Jesus, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. If we jump back to the story of the disciples, Jesus saw directly to the heart of the matter. He knew who had righteous motives and he knew who didn't. And I would suggest to you that Jesus still sees straight to the heart of the matter. He sees your heart right now. He sees the real reason why you and I do things. And I want to ask you, and I want you to ask yourself right now, what are my real motives behind the things that I do? Is your life an offering being poured out like Mary's sweet perfume at the Saviour's feet? Is your life an offering being poured out like two ordinary, everyday young ladies who gave 30 years of their lives in service to an almost impossibly difficult project? So the people of Toga may hear the word of God in their own tongue for the very first time. Do you love Jesus with all your heart? Do you love Jesus with all your heart? Let's pray. Lord, once again, your word brings up a difficult question. Lord, I just would simply pray right now that your spirit would reveal the real me to me. That you would show those things in my life which are not pleasing to you and where those motivations are not really right. Lord, I pray for all of us as we ponder and consider this difficult question. I pray, Lord, we would have the courage to make changes. If we're doing something for the wrong reasons, Lord, I pray we would have the courage to say we're not going to keep doing that. Or if we're saying no to you when we really should be saying yes, when there is a sacrifice opportunity before us and we're saying no. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would minister to us, challenge us and that we would be able to live out those words. We find they're in Romans, Romans 12. That we would lay our lives down as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. We thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.